Welcome to Pick You Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. My name is Pradeep Kumar, and I'm a critical care physician at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. And my name is Rahul Dabania, a current second year pediatric critical care fellow. Today's episode is dedicated to the acute management of the anterior mediastinal mass. We are delighted to be joined by Dr. Lisa Lima and Dr. Tom Austin. Dr. Austin is the Director of General Pediatric Anesthesiology at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Eggleston. He's also the Associate Professor of Anesthesiology and Pediatrics at Emory University School of Medicine. Dr. Lisa Lima is a fourth-year Advanced Technology Fellow in the Division of Critical Care at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. She's also the Senior Associate in the Department of Pediatrics, Emory University School of Medicine. She's one of the only pediatric-trained ECMO Fellows in the country. I will now turn it over to Rahul to start our patient case. We have a 17-year-old female who presents with facial swelling and shortness of breath. She recently went to her primary care doctor and received a steroid burst and Benadryl for the facial swelling. Mother on day of admission noticed that the patient had a deep voice and a funny inspiratory sound. Patient presented to the emergency department and was noted to have a widened mediastinum on chest x-ray, bringing up the concern for an anterior mediastinal mass. Dr. Austin and Dr. Lima, we thank you both for joining us today. And our focus today will be to briefly discuss the differential for mediastinal masses. We'll review key acute management principles and then highlight the role of the anesthesiologist as well as the ECMO team in the contingency planning of mediastinal masses. Dr. Lima, I would like to start with you. And as highlighted in our case, many mediastinal masses can mimic presentations such as angioedema. And as we build our differential, what are some key presentation features for mediastinal masses? Hey, thanks Rahul and Pradeep for having me on Pick You Doc on Call. I'm excited to be here and discuss one of my favorite topics, patients with mediastinal masses, along with anesthesiologist Dr. Tom Austin. I have no conflicts of interest or financial disclosures, just to get that out of the way up front. Children with mediastinal masses can be challenging to diagnose. Their presentation is often with nonspecific findings, including orthopnea, dyspnea, cough. They can have pleural effusions or wheezing. They may have facial swelling and SVC syndrome, as well as pain or stridor. Mediastinal masses are far more common in children greater than five years old, as well as in teenagers. Older children outside of the range typically seen with croup presenting with a barky cough or croup-like symptoms, an anterior mediastinal mass should be a large concern for a differential diagnosis. Dr. Lima, what defines a widened mediastinum and what are the differentials you consider when a patient presents with a concern for mediastinal mass? So a widened mediastinum on chest x-ray is concerning and it should be taken into context with the child's history and presentation. For example, if a child is involved in a high-speed motor vehicle collision and has a widened mediastinum, especially with a first rib fracture, I would expect a traumatic injury, including the great vessels or particularly the aorta. In a patient with a history and presentation suggestive of congestive heart failure, I would think of a pericardial effusion, dilated cardiomyopathy, or enlargement of the pulmonary artery. Widened mediastinum in a patient with lupus or post-transplant would be concerning for a pericardial effusion. Patients with extensive mediastinal lymphadenopathy, pneumomediastinum, can present with a widened mediastinum as well. Teenagers who present with leukemia or lymphoma can also present with that. 
Dr. Lima, that is a broad differential that takes into account what structures are anatomically present in the mediastinum. If we focus our discussion on anterior mediastinal masses, what are some of the key differentials? So about 46% of mediastinal masses are in the anterior compartment. Typically for anterior mediastinal masses, we remember the T's, the four T's. So a thymoma, a teratoma, T-A-L-L or lymphoma, and then thyroid masses. And so just to summarize for our listeners, we want to remember this 4T mnemonic, and this gives us that differential for anterior mediastinum. Now, anatomically, the anterior mediastinum is the space that is going to be confined by the sternum as well as the anterior portion of the right ventricle. Dr. Austin, at times we need to really narrow our differential via tissue biopsy, and we need to consider anesthetizing these patients for a tissue specimen. Would you kindly highlight key principles of pathophysiology, which make these children in particular at risk for anesthetic agents? I'd be glad to. Uh, thank you, uh, Rahul and Pradeep, for having me on uh, the Pick You Doc on Call podcast. And I'm delighted to be here with Dr. Lima to discuss the anesthesiologist's approach to mediastinal masses. I also have no conflicts of interest or financial disclosures. As an anesthesiologist, I look for important risk factors for airway and hemodynamic compromise first. These include tracheal and mainstem bronchial compression by the mass, CT scan findings of greater than 50% decrease in cross-sectional area of the trachea, peak expiratory flow less than 50% of predicted value, although PFTs may be hard to obtain in the pediatric population, associated presence of pericardial effusion, SVC and, excuse me, uh, superior vena cava or SVC, and pulmonary artery compression. Patients who become breathless when they lay flat or those with shortness of breath, wheezing, strider, SVC syndrome on initial presentation are clinically high risk. Dr. Austin, so for a patient with mediastinal mass, as an anesthesiologist, you have to factor in patients' airway as well as their hemodynamics. What are some of the important pathophysiologic issues with a patient with a mediastinal mass? That's an excellent question. While the mass can directly compress the trachea, mainstem bronchus, or worsen obstruction at the level of carina, directly blocking access to the patient's lungs and causing respiratory compromise. There are important implications of the mask with compression of the large vessels. Hemodynamic compromise can occur when the mask compresses the right cardiac chambers, SVC, pulmonary arteries, or pulmonary veins, resulting in decreased left ventricular preload and cardiac output. Compression of the pulmonary arteries not only decreases pulmonary perfusion, resulting in hypoxemia and hypoventilation, but can also lead to right ventricular failure. Pulmonary vein compression can lead to decreased cardiac output, hypoxemia, and pulmonary edema. Ventilation, perfusion, or VQ mismatch from airway and or vascular compression can worsen depending on patient position and depth of anesthesia. When patients are supine, gravitational effects of the chest wall and mediastinal mass together with a cephalide movement of the diaphragm increases intrathoracic pressure and may worsen external compression of the major, major vessels and airway. These effects are magnified under general anesthesia or even under mild sedation or analgesia. I think it's really important for our listeners to really understand that this is such a fine balance of cardiopulmonary interactions. And most importantly, we need to have great appreciation of the risk of cardiovascular collapse as these patients have a very tenuous uh, physiological state. Dr. Austin, prior to the operating room, these patients will undergo non-invasive diagnostics. In patients who are unable to lay flat, 
uh, secondary to local compression, or may developmentally not tolerate a diagnostic scan, what are your general uh, management strategies? So, you know, I use this time to get additional history, uh, perform a personal physical exam, really focusing on the airway and the ability of the patient to lie flat. I also use this time to determine a rescue position for the patient and try to see if there's a particular position such as lateral decubitus or prone that may decrease symptoms. I also review any chest radiographs and CT scans with radiologists, as well as the echocardiographic findings with a cardiologist. I talk to the surgeons, the ECMO team, as well as the patient's oncologist. Most importantly, I speak to the patient and family and inform them of the increased anesthetic risks and concerns that I might have. I also make a backup plan with the operating room staff, as well as my colleagues, just in case if my initial plan goes wrong. As patients likely will be in the PICU prior to going to the operating room, what are the key considerations uh, when the patient is in the PICU that we need to factor in? So one of the big things that we like to make sure is that we keep them spontaneously breathing. We avoid any kind of IV sedation or analgesia. Using acetaminophen or Motrin if needed is fine, but anything that would potentially have an effect on their airway or decrease their vascular tone. We also wanna make sure that we have adequate access with large bore IVs. Um, so the, the other consideration is you wanna make sure that you have large bore IVs and take into consideration where you have anatomic compression. You wanna make sure you have an IV in a site where you don't have compression on the same extremity or the same side. You wanna make sure that you have a rescue position. So potentially prone positioning in a patient who has an anterior mediastinal mass or on the side and where their symptoms are less likely or less prominent. And then you always want to have a backup plan in case they deteriorate rapidly or you have an emergent airway situation. It's important to communicate with the PICU staff as well as the ECMO primers, as well as the anesthesiologists on call because you may need a reinforced endotracheal tube. It's also a time to discuss whether or not this patient is actually an ECMO candidate. Uh, if they need any kind of therapy or emergent radiation, high-dose steroids to help shrink their mass that would make them safer if they do need any kind of sedation in order to obtain imaging or a diagnostic biopsy, although it's advised that we talk to the oncologist about that prior to initiating it, as it could potentially interfere with their ability to diagnose this patient. Our patient in our case uh, likely is going to undergo a Chamberlain procedure to obtain a tissue biopsy. Dr. Lima, would you highlight what is the Chamberlain procedure? Yeah, so another name for a Chamberlain procedure is an anterior mediastinotomy. It's used in lesions that are substernal, and it's used in cases where we don't really have another good primary biopsy site that we can get at that's minimally invasive. So if they don't have a lymph node that is easily accessible, if they don't have pleural effusion, if they can't um, get something that is off of flow cytometry, then oftentimes we resort to doing this in order to obtain a biopsy. It can be performed without invasively entering the pleural space and allows us to prevent forming pleural effusions, pleural seeding of the tumor, and avoid creating a post-op pneumothorax. There is, however, the complication of having hemorrhage post or post-surgical hemorrhage from the internal mammary artery. Dr. Austin, as we transition to the OR, you commonly come across these patients needing intrathoracic biopsies. What are some key anesthesia principles which you would like to highlight in these patients? So in the operating room, uh, I want to reinforce the multidisciplinary team approach with clear role assignment. I also want to keep the patient spontaneously breathing, maintaining airway reflexes and airway tone. 
This may involve pain management with IV acetaminophen or Toradol, a low infusion of, of dexmedetomidine, or very low doses of IV ketamine, although none of these agents are superior to one another, but both require judicious use. I will also encourage liberal use of local anesthetics and give these time to work effectively, and this may uh, take up to 10 minutes or longer with bupivacaine. Most of the time, patients uh, are in the operating room for lumbar punctures, bone marrow biopsies, or lymph node or other mass biopsies, along with possibly PIC and CVL placements. For intubation, typically I'll try everything I can not to intubate the patient if possible. I will continue to encourage spontaneous breathing and uh, use nasal cannula for oxygenation with end tidal CO2 monitoring. Even if I have to intubate, I'll use a reinforced ET tube, not use neuromuscular blockade, uh, but start deepening the anesthetic with short-acting drugs or even using inhaled anesthetics like sevoflurane for induction. I'll also verify that the patient can safely tolerate positive pressure ventilation before administering neuromuscular blockade. So even if they are spontaneously ventilating, I'll try to take over and see if I have any problems with positive pressure ventilation. I can also use a small dose of succinylcholine, which should theoretically wear off pretty fast to kind of see if that is possible. I would also uh, encourage the use of fiber optic intubation for under sedation. This is to limit pain from direct laryngoscopy with the thought being that you need less of an induction agent to actually place the tube. And then also you would avoid neuromuscular blockade theoretically if you were to intubate with a fiber optic scope. Depending on the patient, sometimes a surgeon um, should be present with a rigid bronchoscope. Um, as for sedation choices, again, so Presidex or dexmedetomidine and low-dose ketamine um, used judiciously in titrated effect, so to provide sedation and analgesia without any kind of airway compromise. If the patient is intubated, depending on the case, uh, low-dose sevoflurane can be used for a maintenance of anesthesia. And lastly, for uh, access, uh, placement of age-appropriate large-bore intravenous lines in both the upper and lower extremities are important, especially in the presence of SVC syndrome, where venous return from the upper extremities may be severely compromised. Also, if the patient's well sedated, placement of a central line or pick line should also be considered. I think that this is a great summary which you had regarding sedative choice, access, as well as intubation. And these patients are very complex because they have low physiologic reserve. And I think that is a take home point for our bedside clinicians. I have to agree. I think one of the more important parts here and the more important parts we've found within our own institution is really stressing the importance of interdisciplinary involvement early, making sure that multiple teams have the ability to review the scans, review where you potentially have vascular compression as well as airway compression. Because you, if you have compression that you can potentially overcome with a reinforced endotracheal tube, it's different than if you have compression of your main stem bronchi. And you would potentially, in that second situation or scenario, consider whether or not you need ECMO backup earlier on and really figuring out where you have the potential for being able to cannulate that child based on their vascular compression is particularly important. So having all of those teams involved from the get-go is really, uh, you can't understress the importance of that. Dr. Lima, as an ECMO fellow, what are some of the things you think about when called to assist in these patients that are going to the operating room? Yeah, so first I look at where the airway compression is. 
Second, I look for where your vascular compression is. So when you're thinking about that, I kind of divide it into big kids and little kids. In big kids, you're more likely to have a femoral artery and a femoral vein that are open. In little kids, it's hard to get adequate ECMO flow in your femoral artery and your femoral vein just because of limitation in size. So you really want to figure out up front is if you have additional compression of your large vessels, do you have compression of your aorta? Do you have compression of your PAs? Do you have compression of your SVC? If you have compression of your SVC in a small child, you're really going to be in a bit of a pinch trying to achieve adequate ECMO flow from lower extremity cannulation. So talking with your surgeons up front in that situation becomes even more important. I think the other thing to consider uh, if you emergently do have to cannulate while you're in the operating room is if you're doing a lower extremity femoral cannulation on a VA ECMO, most of these children still have hearts that are functioning appropriately. So you end up getting in a situation where you can have differential hypoxia because you're unable to get adequate ECMO flow and you end up needing an additional venous drain to ensure adequate cerebral oxygenation. Dr. Lima and Dr. Austin, we really appreciate your insights on today's podcast. To summarize our episode today for our listeners, we highlighted the four T's in our differentials of anterior mediastinal masses. Those include thymomas, teratomas, T-A-L-L, especially in teenagers, as well as thyroid masses. We reviewed the pathophysiology of local compression, as well as the importance for clinicians to appreciate the loss of preload as well as airway compression and emphasize a streamlined multidisciplinary approach with important consideration to contingency planning. This concludes our episode on the acute management of mediastinal masses. We thank Dr. Lima and Dr. Austin for their expertise on this topic. We hope you found value in this short podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback and place a review on our podcast. PQ.com Call is co-hosted by me and Dr. Rahul Damania, my co-host. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.